It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Don't forget to catch me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. Just catch me on your DAB radio, your smart speaker, or on the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episode, it's four years since James Canagasorium coined the term the Red Wall. We'll speak to him to see if the Tories are still holding on to it. And we'll speak to Labour MP who lost a seat and a Tory who it thinks it's all going very well. All that coming up in just a moment. But first, it's time for these two. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yeah, no Libby Rach today. We have got Libby Purvis. Morning, Libby. Morning. And joining me in the studio playing the role of Rachel Sylvester is Patrick McGuire. Good morning. Uh, now, much excitement in Westminster right now. Uh, Joe Biden has arrived in the beast. Uh, we can see pictures of Joe Biden. He just seems to be just sitting in his car. The car's parked up in Downshire. There are now people <laughs> running. Now, anyone I've ever spoken to in politics has told me never run. Patrick. Well, especially when you're surrounded by US Secret Service agents, that seems to be a recipe for... There's lots of staff just sort of running up Downing Street. Getting a few rounds of ammunition in the back of the head. I don't know what Joe Biden is doing sat in that... What? Sat in his car. He's is been it, for, it, literally for about it, five minutes now. Is it Rishi Sunak's fault? Is it because Rishi Sunak hasn't come out to welcome him? Oh, oh hang on, the doors are open. Here he comes. He's No, that's not him. Oh, oh yeah, let's hear some live footage of... Ambient noise. ...doors opening. Uh, and here he is. <laughs> Out your pop. There is Joe Biden. Uh, now walking up down street. Uh, uh, uh. Oh, a loud photographer trying to attract his attention or just reminding him where he is. Of course, Joe Biden... Uh, here in London for a very brief meeting, it has to be said, with Richard Sinek. Shaking hands there with Richard Sinek on the steps of number 10. It's all smiles for the cameras. It's not all smiles behind the scenes, though, is it, Patrick? Not least on these small matter of cluster bombs. No, it's funny, you know, I, if I can take you back briefly to Labour conference in, was it 2009 or 2010, where Gordon Brown roused the troops with a very long speech about everything Labour had accused, uh, achieved in government. And the one line I always remember from that speech is, Gordon Brown ending on the peroration of the ban on cluster bombs. So in my head, ever since that speech, I've assumed that cluster bombs are sort of beyond the pale. But no, Rishi Sunak uh, disagrees with Joe Biden's decision to uh, give Ukraine cluster bombs and, you know, much else besides NATO membership for Ukraine. Um, they, they agree on the matter of Sweden that they, the NATO are going to be discussing in Lithuania. But there are big, knotty foreign policy yeah. issues that the two of them uh, disagree with. You know, you speak to diplomats on both sides and they say look relations are better than they were under Boris Johnson and Liz Truss that's a low bar um, so it'd be really interesting to see the mood music the are competing readouts you know, they, they have you know, their fifth meeting in yeah. five months yeah, yeah. 
Um, so that, that, what, that sound we could just hear was just uh, the huge entourage of people following Joe Biden in. Lots of them carrying huge bags of luggage, uh, sort of holdles and, uh, um, yeah, bags. Uh, Libby, um, is, what do you, on this cluster bombs issue, it, is, it was sort of quite surprising that something that, that we've literally banned. America not only produces them, but is willing to hand them over to another country. Well, it's a, it's a regular thing, isn't it? Is this absolute need of British prime ministers have to show us all, because we need them to show us all, that they can be friendly with American presidents, but they can stand up to them. It is such a common trope, it turned up in a Richard Curtis film, <laughs> even with a fic- fictional prime minister, you know, that actually it is quite important that Rishi Sunak is seen publicly to say, no, we have banned cluster bombs, you know, cluster bombs are beyond the pale, these should not be involved in this, you know, in, in, in this hideous um, business of Ukraine and that all the same about the speed of joining NATO that it's that moment of having to sort of show that we we are who we are and an American president does not boss us around and yet the relationships are good and it has been fascinating over many many prime ministers watching how this particular sort of balance is made and I'll be very interested to see what they both say and what transpires after this meeting. I suppppose to some extent Patrick um, a, a, a light disagreement where Rishi Sunak makes clear he doesn't like cluster bombs and Joe Biden makes clear where he's going to give them to Kiev anyway uh, and it doesn't, cha- it doesn't other... change the outcome yeah. uh, just as Britain advocating Ukrainian membership of NATO doesn't change the outcome because if the US are opposed to it it's not going to happen uh, as Libby says it's a, a chance for a bit of performative breast beating from Rishi Sunak that doesn't change the outcome. Uh, both sides know where this is headed. Um, so, you know, works for everybody. And, you know, Rishi Sunak gets a, a nice photo on the steps of Danish. At least, at least we're talking about Rishi Sunak on his terms rather than all the other many, many things in his in-tray which he didn't put there. Yeah, look, and Rishi Sunak gets to do the... You know, this is the, perhaps the one area of government policy where Rishi Sunak is defining himself against Boris Johnson. Yeah. Well, not that he has to do anything, right? He just gets the cordial picture with Joe Biden and they clearly have a warm personal relationship in a way that just obviously wasn't true uh, of Boris Johnson. Uh, and, you know, this trust wasn't there long enough to forge any kind of relationship with him. And then obviously he's meeting the King later to talk about climate change. We'd be interested to see what, what, what emerges from that, given the sensitivities around the King and commenting on politics and and all that. Mm. Um, Patrick, let's move on. Um, now, am I going to read the intro of your column or are you going to? I think you should. Okay. Do a dramatic reading. <laughs> it will be gauche for me to read the intro to my so, column. So Patrick, Patrick's uh, written his regular column uh, for The Times. Uh, this is the intro. Have you heard of Jim McMahon? Be honest, you probably haven't. There's no point pre- pretending you've heard of Jim McMahon now. If you have, you are likely to know only that he's in line for the sack when Labour reshuffles its shadow cabinet. That is in no small part because you hadn't heard of Jim McMahon's work as shadow environment secretary. If you had, he might be keeping his job. But you hadn't, so he isn't. And that much you may know about Jim McMahon. Poor Jim, eh? Have you heard from Jim this morning? Sadly not. Sadly not. I've heard (laughs) from plenty of Labour people this morning, but not from Jim. Um, And look, it's not really about Jim McMahon, my column. Um, (laughs) Just for readers, it's not all Jim McMahon-based. Well, look, look, if you want stuff on Jim McMahon, I can give you loads on Jim McMahon, but that's for uh, when I next sit in for you over August, isn't it? Um, The the big thing, Jim McMahon. The issue, but it's a real issue for the Labour Party that we're sat here making jokes about Jim McMahon being sacked and people in the Labour Party have been speaking about 
Jim McMahon, the Shadow Environment Secretary, and how he's inevitably going to be sacked or demoted in the next Shadow Cabinet reshuffle. People discussed this very openly. It's appeared in newspapers several times. And why has nothing happened? Why is Jim McMahon still in post? <laughs> Stop saying Jim McMahon. But, <laughs> but it's not the new Odyssey. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, you have lots of people in the Labour Party who around Keir Starmer, who will be involved in discussions over reshuffle, who will be in the room as Keir, Shuffle, Keir Starmer reshuffles his shadow cabinet, who want that to be a shadow cabinet reshuffle. It's a purely political question that it's been looming over the Labour Party since Rishi Sunak reorganised his cabinet and created lots of new jobs that the Labour Party doesn't shadow. Um, it's creating resentment. It's breeding rivalry, rivalry between colleagues. Uh, the briefing between them doesn't, between and against them doesn't stop. And Keir Starmer has just let this situation lie. There's an argument that, oh, look, if you brief to the newspapers that someone's going to be um, reshuffled or sacked, that they're suddenly on their toes. I don't think that applies here. You know, this isn't a performance-related thing or discipline thing. It's a reminder that Keir Starmer is unused to and unaccustomed to taking straightforward questions of political judgment. And this is only a decision that Keir Starmer can make. As one shadow minister who's involved in this process said to me, look, we're ready. Keir knows what we think. It's up to him to say when. And yeah. there's a lot of bewilderment in the Labour Party that it's taken this long and it's quietly destabilising the shadow cabinet. Uh, and which you wouldn't notice because Labour are 25 points ahead in the polls, but it just but it, it it's a reminder of Keir Starmer's decision-making style, all that thereof. Well, um, I th it feels only fair that we should hear from Jim McMahon. Unfortunately, this is a clip of him being asked if Jim McMahon is going to get sacked. I mean this in the nicest possible way, but it sounds a little bit like you're trying... You're almost acknowledging that you are likely to lose your job and you're just trying to pitch for on your record. Well, I'm not for a start, and I'm not going to get into the speculation and the motivations... Uh, behind it. Uh, but listen, the environment brief is a coveted brief. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised at all if more people were looking at it and saying, with the profile that we've raised uh, in terms of food security, in terms of the water industry, in terms of nature and all that has to offer, of course I would expect other people. So your uh, rivals to want are coming it. from you, maybe. Uh, maybe but, they're who briefed to, to the but, 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 but I'm very proud of the work uh, that, that I've done. Libby, your views on Jim McMahon. Well, why are we going on and on and on about this one individual? Jim McMahon, for heaven's sake, boys. Possibly the man hugs trees and that's what's wrong with him. Far, far more interesting is the fact he's supposed to be Shadow Environment Secretary and this extraordinary and fascinating remark by Keir Starmer about I hate tree huggers because I thought that was, that was an enormous clue as to an actual sort of policy direction um, that Keir Starmer has understood that there are not many votes in net zero, there are not many votes in extreme environmentalism because people are so interested in the now and the living costs and the public services and although he has said some sharp things about look we're going to put pylons up whether you like it or not, they're going to be wind farms and so on, but I did think that tree hug remark was very revealing so possibly what is wrong with this poor man McMahon, whoever he is, yeah. is that he hugged a tree and Keir Starmer spotted him out <laughs> it and, and, and bins him. But no, let, let's talk about their actual direction. And I did think that his remark about tree huggers was a very, very revealing one indeed. So explain the background of this, Patrick. Well, yeah, it, the, the Sunday Times carried, uh, as Libby is saying, a story about Keir Starmer allegedly quipping in shadow cabinet a couple of weeks ago after Ed Miliband had given a presentation. You know, I'm not a tree hugger. In fact, I hate tree huggers. Now, 
this remark is disputed, it should be said. Uh, Shadow Cabinet Ministers who've sat through uh, many, many hours of their lives in Shadow Cabinet meetings with Keir Starmer uh, did perhaps question the idea that Keir Starmer could make an interesting off-the-cuff remark in a Shadow Cabinet meeting about anything. Um, <laughs> but Libby is, Libby is right in that the fact, you know, regardless of the truth of the remark or who you said it to whom or exactly what Keir Starmer thinks about tree huggers, it, is, it does go to show that there is an influential current of opinion around the Labour leader who think exactly what Libby just said, that there are no votes, or there are few votes, or it's a political risk making themselves the party of greenery and net zero. What you're much more likely to hear, and what we're already hearing, is people like Rachel Reeves talking about, I'm all about economic security, so that's why we're going to um, have a just transition and green the economy and you know build wind turbines and you know have renewable and you know the, it, express this stuff in yeah, terms yeah, of yeah. jobs and not sort of environmental. And, and Rachel Reeves at the weekend seemed to be rowing back; it was even less committed to Ed Miliband's 28 billion pounds. I suppose the only thing is that. Um, <coughs> Labour are currently still losing one in ten of their 2019 votes to the Greens. And at the moment, that doesn't matter because they're picking up one in six votes of people who voted Tory last time uh, and, a, and a smattering of you know, a big old chunk of Lib Dems as well. But if Rishi Sunak manages to win some of the Tories back, you know, there's a risk. You know, Keir Starmer's going to need some of those Green people, isn't he? He can't turn his back on that completely. Well, you say something that people in Starmer's inner circle like Deborah Mattinson and Peter Hyman, two aides, um, two strategy, two of Keir Starmer's strategists have been saying for a long time to the chagrin of uh, lots of their colleagues. But th this is an argument that's been happening in Keir Starmer's in Keir Starmer's office for some time. That's why last year at his conference, his, his slogan was a fairer, greener future, which lots of people thought was, was, was silly and didn't make any sense. But it does go to show that there is an anxiety and that Labour can bleed votes to their left uh, as much as gain them to their right. Oh, well, um, I mean, what do you think, Libby? Do I mean, is, is there just a case of saying, well, you should show some leadership? If you do think we need to tackle climate change and you are going to do something about it, you should tell us before he becomes Prime Minister, shouldn't you? Yes, I suppose so. Um, nobody will be believe him anyway. Few will be actually <laughs> listening. But no, I, I do actually think that it it it, it is just an interesting perception that actually people are really strapped now. People are really nervous. People are nervous about housing. You know, every generation has got its own problems. You know, uh, even even the the occasional boomer has the odd problem. And I think that the idea of the idea of putting environmental um, causes sort of front and centre um, is something which will no politician will wisely do before the next election. I think yeah. it's fascinating. It's a very vocal group. I mean, I agree with a lot of it. I agree with a lot of the campaigners. I don't go out and campaign. But I do not think it has much traction yeah. when it actually comes to votes. People are scared right now. They say Britain's in a mess. Public services are in a mess. It's all broken. For God's sake, you know, do something for us, you know, not just for the environment, for the world, because we are a very small country anyway and look what's happening in China and look yeah, what's happening yeah. in America. I just don't think that the mood music uh, of extreme environmental um, statements before election will do anybody on any party any good. Rishi Sunak meeting Joe Biden. They are in the garden of, uh, of number 10 in the Down Street Garden uh, having a cup of tea. It's like someone's taking their nan out for the day, isn't it? <laughs> They've got the best china out, some... Uh, uh, yeah, some nice, nice teacups. Uh, I've got, actually, I've got a number ten mug at home, Dan Street mug. Did you that you pilfered? No, I didn't actually. I did a swap. I gave someone a red box mug oh. in exchange uh, for, for a mug, which they may well have 
pilfered, I think. Uh, but Joe Biden said the relationship with Britain is rock solid as well. So there we are. Much like the biscuits. <laughs> right, uh, let's move on. Uh, Libby, let's talk about ticket offices. You've written uh, in your column today, um, railways will always need the human touch. Uh, and you think that taking away the ticket offices could be good for travellers. Now, having had one or two rows about this in the last week with Mariella Frostrup, who is about to chain herself to the uh, ticket office at Castle Carey Station, uh, would you like to tell me why I'm right? Because <laughs> uh, you're always right, isn't it, at Correct. that point? Um, uh, no, uh, the, the, the thing is, if you look at what the Rail Delivery Group is actually saying, now they may not deliver it. I mean, for God's sake, they're not even delivering their new ticket website, which they promised ages ago. Um, it is that the people, rather than have sort of one in ten tickets sold over a counter, they will have people out there on the platforms, those same people. They say it's about redeployment, not, um, not uh, throwing them out entirely. It's about more people out on the platforms to help, you know, to guide all the rest of it. Now, that could be a good thing if it's very well done. And if the technology runs alongside it, you've got to use human beings in a useful way, which is actually being available to go and help somebody. And you've also got to use technology properly. There should be a bench on every station for people who are vulnerable or having difficulty getting tickets or can't manage the machines or whatever, um, where they can push a button and somebody comes to them and explains to them what to do and helps them with the ticket machine. You know, you could do that. But of course, what always happens is everybody says, this is just trying to lose jobs. This is just money saving. And if it is, that's wrong. But it might not be just money saving. It's possible that in an ideal world where the various people involved trusted each other to wit governments, rail companies and unions, none of which None of those trust the others. Uh, if people did trust each other, you could work together towards something really very effective, um, as indeed happens on the London Underground. So try that. What do you think, Patrick? You, you've well, had some interactions with the train offices of Britain this weekend? I certainly have. Uh, and can I, I, I read Libby's column with great gratification this morning because on Friday I was getting a train to York for a wedding. Um, I immediately put the location there just to clarify I was not at George Osborne's, George Osborne's wedding. Why like, not? You're, well, the only, you're the only time, the three of us are the only Times Radio regulars. I know. Who, oh, well, hang on a bit, we should check first. Libby, were you at George Osborne's wedding? No, no, I couldn't get hold of enough orange confetti. And I couldn't get there in time. <laughs> Sorry, go on, Patrick. So, 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 yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, so, so, sorry, I was. Um, I, I got there to King's Cross on Friday morning, and despite the uh, exhortations of uh, of my mate Johnny, who was urging me to uh, buy the ticket months and months ago, obviously hadn't done that. Yeah. And I thought I'd just buy one on the day, so I got my phone out, got on the train line, and uh, all the trains were sold out. Um, and so I went to the ticket off. And the only option was. You know, buy one on the day for 150 quid. Went to the ticket office. He said, "No, no, no don't worry. 45 pounds with your rail card. What a what a what a what a bargain!" And then also on the way back from York, obviously didn't learn from my mistake. Didn't pre-book a ticket. Uh, bought a ticket there, and um, the kind. You didn't buy return. Uh, on LNER, you can no longer buy returns. Oh, that's what they've got rid of. Uh, well, so, in short, nobody needs to know about my movements over the weekend. All I can say is, <laughs> ticket offices are great, human interaction is great, and they oh. always know more. So than... you're pro the ticket office? I'm pro. I'm aggressively pro ticket office. Well, Libby's, Libby's anti. Well, Libby's anti ticket offices? Well, yeah, shut them. That's what, that's what you're saying, isn't it, Libby? 
No, no, I'm saying that you have to think of different ways yeah, so rather you're, you're than always having somebody behind a counter. Yeah, there yeah, should sure, be sure, somebody sure. on the station. Yes. Somebody on the station would have come up to poor, confused Patrick yeah. and looked after him. Exactly. You know, as the elderly and vulnerable yes. and hopeless <laughs> have to be looked after. You are so, so, uh, the, in, my, in my dream world, there would have been a... He would have pushed a button. He would have sat on a sad bench, pushed a button. Somebody would have come to him and said, look, come over to this machine yeah. here. Let me help you, dear. I hope they'd have squatted down as well just to come to your level he's saying you're right you're right um libby have you ever staged a protest at a wedding no and i wouldn't actually i mean i i made a a nasty gag just now but honestly i don't like it i think that this this turning of issues and politics and ideas into the absolutely personal i hate tories never kissed a tory hate osborne I, I hate it. I mean, I hate what Osborne did. I disapprove of what he did as as, um, as Chancellor and so on. But no, if people are getting married, leave them alone. If they're getting a baby's christened, leave them alone. You know, just, just stop it. Patrick? Hard to disagree with that, no matter what you think of George Osborne, I think. You know, it's not that, I mean, look, clearly it's not the end of the world, but, um, you know, if you are a climate activist, there's a reason Extinction Rebellion have stopped doing this sort of thing. And indeed, it's quite telling that Just Stop Oil... Who, distance, they sort uh, of claim credit and they distance themselves. They're completely yeah, unrepentant yeah. most of the time. We're very quick, to, well, not very quick, but we're keen to point out that, yes, we condone this, but by the way, it wasn't us. It's yeah. that even they would draw the line there. So that's telling. Yeah, we finally found the line, and it's George Osborne. Libby Perez and Patrick McGuire there, and of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, four years of the Red Wall. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. The Red Wall became a sea of blue in 2019. The bond of trust in labour areas and the Red Wall areas was always there, and that bond was broken. I did say that we've got problems in the Red Wall. Labour's so-called Red Wall in the north crumbled. Coming up to exactly four years since James Canagasorium coined the term the Red Wall. It stretched from North Wales, he said, into Merseyside, Warrington, Wigan, Manchester, Oldham, Barnsley, Nottingham and Doncaster. When you talk about the cultural barriers to voting Tory, this is where it is. This entire stretch shouldn't be all Labour, but it is. And then in the 2019 election that followed... It wasn't, in Boris Johnson, made huge gains up against uh, Jeremy Corbyn. The 2019 election saw the Labour Party suffer its worst electoral defeat since 1935. So we thought, four years on, after coining it, uh, we'd go back and revisit the Red Wall, see what state it's in. And James Canagasorium uh, joins me in the studio now. James, how are you? Oh, fine, thanks, Mark. Did you realise, four years ago, when you mentioned the Red Wall in a tweet, what on earth you were unleashing? 
Uh, no. <laughs> Not at all, no. So explain what is and isn't, because it, it's, it sort of slightly turned into a catch-all term of any seat which the Tories took off of Labour. Mm. Anything sort of in the north, what is the Red Wall and what isn't it? Yeah, so it's good to, to be able to clear it up and thanks for having me on. <laughs> um, so broadly, look, it's, it's 42 seats um, that, that I kind of identified uh, in, the, I think, the summer of 2019. And broadly, the idea was that they weren't Conservative as of 2017. Um, they had a leave vote, I think, above 55%. So that already gets you down to around 123 seats. And then I was very interested in areas that where the Conservatives had a, a kind of uh, were at the foothills of something, where they already had a, a vote to build on. So um, I saw that there were kind of 107 seats then that had a Conservative vote share in 2017 above 25%. And then there were a couple of other criteria. Uh, so <laughs> the first was that um, broadly since 2010 to 2017, there'd been a 5% swing to, to, to the party. And then the fourth criteria is the most unusual, which was this idea that they were seats where the Conservative Party should have been doing better given the underlying demographics, um, but weren't. So that was a kind of further slice. And that actually got you 70 seats. And then I kind of put a qualitative kind of overlay on top of that, which was uh, kind of guesswork looking at history that got you to a final list of around 42. And I think from memory, 30 fell in that election. But no, at, at, at that point in time, I was not expecting it, it was, it was, uh, <laughs> at all. It was one of those things, I was, I was kind of between jobs uh, and I thought it'd be interesting just to take a look at uh, the underlying demographics. Because look, fundamentally... I think what's a surprise to me is that the story of the Red Wall was actually quite a consistent story that had uh, a lot of predecessors, right? So if you think about the 2015 general election, the, um, the Conservatives winning over large swathes of the South West was actually quite similar in the sense that a lot of them were contiguous, a lot of them were seats that were clustered together. Yeah, They tended to be more on the Levy side, although not as Leave as what the Red Wall was. And they had a history of... Uh, being much less conservative than you would expect given the underlying demographics. Yeah. So what I mean by that is, if you looked at the rates of home ownership, if you looked at the average age of the constituency, if you looked at uh, measures of kind of deprivation or the lack of it, the South West is always that the fall of, I guess, they could have turned it the Yellow Wall, they didn't. Yeah. Uh, thank, thank goodness. <laughs> or you didn't. But actually that story was really similar. And actually yeah. there's been lots of stories like that. So it is interesting that it's just been picked up like this. Um, is it fair to say that Theresa May played a bigger part in the Tories knocking down the Red Wall than she gets credit for? That, that actually she made inroads in 2017 and Boris Johnson sort of knocked lots of them over. Is that a fair characterisation? I think that is a fair characterisation because I think that, I'm not sure the figure that I have to hand, but I think it's 700,000 net votes increase in the Conservative vote nationally between 2017 and 2019. And the the really big change was on the first-past-the-post system is the Labour vote going down from 40-odd yeah. percent to around 33%, which obviously changed the dynamics. But the swing that was present in 2017... Um, you know, in the 2017 election, it was a hung parliament, but there were a couple of seats, I think f five, six or seven or so, that were a harbinger. Like, so I think North East Derbyshire was in there, Mansfield was one. A lot of the seats that now have kind of super majorities. Um, and so, yeah, I, I actually went back uh, through the 2017 results. And actually, if you just slotted in 
Theresa, Theresa May's vote share that she got in 2017, and then I guess the Labour vote share of 2019, around 70% of the gains that the Conservatives wow. had would, 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 would have happened. So, so it's the drop in the Labour vote rather than yeah, some big... But, but it's not all that. Like, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's around 70%, 30%. I guess the other, if you were to argue the other way... Um, uh, Johnson, Prime Minister Johnson, was much uh, more capable at characterising Jeremy Corbyn yeah. than, I guess, Theresa May yeah, was. Yeah, so yeah. it's hard to extricate that and answer that. But the, bi the big kind of signifiers on that are approval ratings. Yeah. And uh, Boris Johnson's approval ratings were uh, not that high. It's just that Jeremy Corbyn's net, so net approval rates. And also part of that is because it was his second go at fighting an election. And, and it's, you know, reinventing yourself as the... It's hard to be the change candidate if you're, you've been in post longer than the guy you're up against. Yeah, and I think uh, a lot of other things went, uh, you know, uh, happened in that intervening yeah, yeah. period. I think, you know, the Russian poisonings, for example. Yeah, exactly, to change people's views of him. So where are we now? What state is the red wall in? And you talk about supermajority the Conservatives got uh, in some of those seats, but nothing is fixed. We know that now in politics, that, you know, big majorities can suddenly go. Well, there's more supermajorities in the seats that flipped in 2017. Oh, OK. So that were quite similar to... Yeah, yeah. So, but what sort of state are those red wall seats in now? Are they now solidly Conservative? Or, when Boris Johnson famously the morning after the 2019 election said you know, you've lent me your vote and you, I, I, you know, you need to trust that I will uh, look after that. Are people happy having lent the vote or are there lots of gains to be made by the Labour Party in taking back the, the Red Wall? Well, I think it's just worth rewinding to the initial analysis, which is the, the point of the Red Wall is that they were, these seats were, were to become typical marginals. So really we should talk about the Red Wall as if it's just another subgroup of, of, of marginals. Yeah. And with the Labour Party between 15 and 25 points ahead, uh, given that they were 11 points behind, obviously that's a massive national swing. And you would expect the vast majority of those, if the polls today are replicated, for those to be in trouble. So in that way, they're not that much different from typical marginals, which I think is just the main thing. There's been a lot of characterisation of them as this very, very different thing that shares no kind of political DNA with the rest of the country. But actually, the red wall seats have a have a lot in common with other kind of uh, typical marginals. And so, is it more a symptom of how long-standing cultural allegiances? Yeah. You know, we always vote Labour. You know, my family or this town have always voted Labour or always voted Conservative. Yeah. All those things are up for play, and we saw it in Scotland when the SNP uh, took parts of Scotland, which we thought were always going to vote Labour. That yeah. actually, people are less tribal. They're more maybe transactional when it comes to I who gets a, their vote. That's a fair characterisation. I think the point is is that now those seats will swing with the country. Yeah. So yes, if Labour are leading by 20, 25 points, obviously a lot of them are in trouble. But I think the point is, let's say there's a future Conservative government, you would actually expect quite a lot of them to then fall back into the Conservative column. So they just join this mass plethora or this kind of seam of marginal seats. And that's kind of the point when you did the demographic analysis on them, given their rates of home ownership, which is much higher in the Red Bull than it is in the UK at large, the point is they had a lot more in common in terms of their political DNA, yeah. with a lot of similar seats in the South. And so, in terms of Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak, hmm. do either one of them play better when you're doing your polling? Hmm. Do either one of them play better in the Red Wall? I think, again, the polls are broadly... In, the, the polling in the Red Wall is not yeah. that dissimilar. So you know, the story is not that, not that exciting. I think at the minute, Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak's polling uh, leadership ratings are quite similar. Yeah. And again, 
I'll expect it to play quite similarly in the red uh, red wall. And it depends on what metric you're looking at as well, because there's lots of different numbers thrown around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you have any regrets about turning at the red wall? No, no I don't think so. I mean, hopefully it's not the only th thing I do. Um, <laughs> but it's better than, you know, better than nothing. lots of holsters. Yeah. <laughs> um, is there a new wall or a new thing that we should be looking at? If, if the red wall I is now much like... more than anything else. Um, if, if, but if, if the red wall is now looking more or less like marginals in the, I don't know, the southeast or the Midlands yeah. or whatever, is there, is there a new thing which we should be talking about that we're not? I think I think there's something that's not not as kind of uh, not as well branded and a bit more complicated. I'm actually gonna, hopefully going to be writing something on it soon for for you guys. But I think it's just this idea that different seats have a different amount of political elasticity. So you know what do I mean by that? Some seats when they swing to the government or the opposition if it's incoming, do so where a lot of votes transfer, and so. They change with the government, but when they do so, they give a lot, a big majority, yeah, to the incoming government. And I think we've slightly lost sight of uh, lost sight of seats that, that that can change, even though they're very large majorities. Basically. So it could. So so some seats, with currently with a big Tory majority, yeah, could be more predisposed to twanging to a big Labour majority. Yeah, exactly. I think of a kind of a rubber band, yeah. uh, uh, pinging. And again, if there's another election after that. They, they can kind of because we think back. of marginals as these things that only just vote Labour or just vote Conservative, yeah. depending on who's in government. Because actually, that's not the case at all. Um, it, it, you can get marginals that do kind of swing with the government, but the actual so majority is, is, is very. So different. when we say marginal, we think it's a small margin, but actually, the truth is, it just means they're, up for, they're up for yeah. they're up for players uh, more. And I think that's going to be really interesting in yeah. the next election. It's Matt Chorley on Times Radio taking a look at four years of the Red Wall. James Canagher saw him, the pollster, uh, who coined the term, uh, has just told us that, uh, well, it's, it's all over the graph. They're basically like normal marginals now. But uh, now let's take a look at what uh, is going on in the Red Wall from the perspective of uh, those who've tried to win and lose there. Uh, the former Labour MP, Jenny, Jenny Chapman lost the seat of Darlington, which had been blue since, uh, which had been red since 1992, uh, to the Conservatives in the 2019 election. Uh, she's now a peer and joins me now. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? I'm very well. I'm very well. And in the studio, Sir Jake Berry is the MP for Rossendale and Darwin in Lancashire. He's also the head of the Northern Research Group of Tory MPs. Morning, Jake. Good morning, Matt. Jenny, let's start with you first of all. Um, when uh, you had people like James saying the Red Wall was vulnerable in 2019, were you worried about losing your seat? Yes. <laughs> and why? Is it a fair characterisation that people said that these are parts of the country which Labour had taken for granted and along came the Tories, Brexit gave them an inroad because lots of these places voted for Brexit, uh, Labour had taken it for granted and you were punished for that? Or, 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 or what's your characterisation of why, why parts of the red wall turned blue? I think it is a trend that we saw probably starting between 2005 and 2010. Um, I don't think um, that it's right or accurate to say that the Labour Party took those seats for granted. I think politically we might have done, but we in government had invested an awful lot, and rightly so, um, on city centre regeneration, on um, Sure Start, on healthcare, um, on education. Almost every school in Darlington was refurbished or rebuilt. So there was a lot of investment that went on. Um, but I could see that the Labour Party from 2010 particularly onwards 
and certainly from 2015, um, became very disconnected from the needs, the hopes, the aspirations, the ambitions of the people that um, I was representing and that I've always lived amongst and grew up with and I am one of them. Um, I, I could just, you could just feel it um, moving away. And it, so in a way, you know, what happened in 2019, it was a shock to the Labour Party, not to everybody in it. And it, it was a wake up call and it was people of Northern Britain saying, hey, we're here, you're meant to be from a, for us, Where, you know, come back. And what's good, I think, is that Keir Starmer um, was very keen to listen to that and has spent a lot of time understanding and changing the Labour Party to better reflect uh, the people you know, that, that I care most about, which is people living in the north of England. Um, just before I bring Jake in, is it a problem then that in, the, uh, in that period you're talking about, 2010 to 2015, the Labour Party is being led by the man who now sits in the, sits in the shadow cabinet and uh, is in charge of this £28 billion uh, plan, uh, the Green Plan? Is it, is it a problem that Ed Miliband is right there, smack bang in the middle of Team Starmer, given that you're saying that he was in part responsible for, for losing touch? No, because what Ed, Ed's plan will do is bring jobs to Teesside and to other parts of the North East, because this is all about the Labour Party facing the future and saying, you know, I think in 20, you know, between 2015 and 2019, we had people in the Labour Party saying what the answer is, is to reopen the coal mines. I mean, do one, please. I've got two sons. I do not want them going anywhere near going down the pit. That's where my husband's family um, you know, his granddad had his chest crushed down a pit. And I just, I didn't want that for my family. And most people I know in the Northeast want their kids to work in tech, in finance, you know, um, in pharmaceuticals, um, in energy. And the jobs of the future is what we want. And that's what the Labour Party's Green Investment Plan is all about. So when you had this stuff in the Times yesterday about Keir Starmer saying what I mean, I was in the meeting where he said what he said about tree huggers. The reason he said that is because for him, this green investment plan is all about jobs and energy security. It's an economic necessity. And that so, so that's why I think we're on the right page now. And that's why I think voters are starting to not a done deal by any means, but in places like Darlington and in other parts of the north yeah. are starting to come back to the Labour Party. Did he actually say I hate tree huggers? I don't remember him saying he hated tree huggers, uh, but we, he, there was a discussion about the, uh, the, the merits. The merits of, of hugging trees. trees. Yes. Right, very good. Uh, Jake Berry, how is the red wall looking four years on after uh, Boris Johnson turned large parts of it blue? Is Rishi Sunak going to turn large parts of it red? Look, I don't think so, and I'll tell you why. Look, the idea that these have become safe Conservative seats is for the birds. They have just become competitive for the first time in a generation for the Conservative Party. But I do think the red wall will be a lot stickier than polling will allow you to believe. We have a recent example for this because, of course, the Labour Party lost through neglect. The All of those seats up in Scotland. And what we found is when people do something new, they vote for a new party, then they tend to stick with it for several elections. And why do people do that? Well, they do that because they like being right. And if you live in Darlington, which voted Conservative for the first time for a generation, not only have you seen nearly £500 million, sorry, not billion, spent in Darlington creating a Treasury campus, huge investment, 
But also you can turn to your mates at the pub or at the school gate or at the football field, whatever it is, and say, I voted Conservative and Darlington's got better and I was right. And people like being right. It is human nature. And that's why I think they'll stick with the Conservatives. In my own seat of Rosendale and Darwin, we will have seen over £100 million invested in this Parliament alone with a £25 million town deal in Darwin, £50 million quid in Rosendale. It's because the Conservatives not only took these seats... I mean, mine was not a red wall, but it is still a red wall seat, but I won it in 2010. Not only did they take these seats, but they put the investment in as well. People can point to stuff on their local high street that the Conservative government has done, and that's why I think they'll stick with them. So why is the Conservatives 20, 25 points behind in the polls? If it's all going so well and everyone's very pleased with what the government's been doing? Well, I, the polls vary, of course, but I think well, uh, ve- between 15 and 25, I'll take the 15. OK, okay. but they, look, they vary, so, between, look, are things good they vary at the between defeat and wipeout currently. Yeah, are things good at the moment? No, but when people have to make a forced choice at a general election, then I think they will. the red wall will be much stickier. Let's not forget, you know, these questions they ask, well, if there was an election tomorrow, what would you do? Well, there's not an election tomorrow. And when people walk into that ballot box, every election is a referendum on their future. Uh, they think, what's going to be good for me and my family? Is my local area getting better? Is my kids' school getting better? And in that referendum on the future, then I actually think the Conservative Party can and potentially will win if Rishi Sunak gets out the traps and sets out his vision for Britain. I don't think either Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer have done it yet, and that's why I think the election's still wide open. Jenny, are you getting flashbacks of the sort of things that you had to say in the run-up to the 2019 election? There's only one poll that matters. What's people getting the the privacy of the ballot box? That is exactly what I was thinking, um, (laughs) that you have to, you know, you've got to keep your hope alive, but um, (laughs) in the end... You know, trust me, Jake, that isn't what, but, you, you know, but, isn't it brilliant we've got a Tory MP is not what people are going around Darlington saying. They are really angry, mostly about the mortgages, but also the state of um, education and health services in the town. And then they're, they're not seeing um, any great step change. in investment. But this, the, Jenny, the economic campus is fantastic. You know, we're really pleased to have it. We look forward to the jobs coming that have been promised, because in all honesty, they haven't yet. Um, But we're completely committed to that, just as the Labour government brought student loans company and we, you know, we've got as many jobs as we could out of London into the north. That's exactly the right thing to do. Um, And we we, we support that and would continue it. But the idea that people are sitting around just thinking, gosh, yeah, we were right to vote Tory, let's do it again, especially in in May, we now have a Labour-led council um, from May this year, so I, I don't. I, I'm really sorry, Jake. I've been in that place. So, Jenny, I, I remember we were on any questions together. I think before the 2019 election, and we we had a what bit. What did of, I say? Yeah, I think you told me you're going to win, but I think the difference is. <laughs> I, 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 I think I disagree with you, but I think the difference is in that 2019 election, people like couldn't stand. Jeremy Corbyn. So when you were door knocking anywhere in the Red Wall, I went to nearly every seat. I wasn't even talking about Brexit. I was just saying, if you don't vote Conservative, Jeremy Corbyn would be Prime Minister. Right, I'm not having that. Like, like, you know, I'm going to vote Tory for the first time ever. The difference is there isn't that strong feeling either in favour of Keir Starmer or against Rishi Sunak. And therefore, Mm. people, I think, will judge on that referendum on the future. I openly admit, Rishi Sunak hasn't set out his compelling vision for Britain yet. He's starting to, but I say neither has Keir Starmer. And where the Labour Party goes wrong, and I've seen it with Ed Miliband 
Jeremy Corbyn, Keir Starmer, is it's really, really easy to diagnose the problems. We all know what they are. The NHS is struggling. The schools were on strike last week. But the Labour Party and the Conservative Party need to tell people what they think the solution is. And that is a compelling argument to vote for them. Um, and I saw it with Ed Miliband when he was sort of miles ahead in the polls. He was sort of saying, well, there's all these problems, but people are interested in solutions. And if you live in Darlington or Rosendale and Darwin, you can see some of those solutions materialising today on your doorstep or in your local town in a way that they never did under a, a, a Labour government. That's completely not true, Jay. I mean, I do live in Darlington. And what I see is schools in absolute crisis. And I see people waiting for months and months for treatment in the health service. And they didn't used to. And no one's saying life is better now than it was when the Labour government was responsible for what was happening in the town. No one is saying that. And I do think you're right to say that we need to lay out the how um, and not just... Well, um, both parties do, don't they? Yeah, that's <laughs> I think we right. can agree that's about that. We absolutely agree on that. But I think that's what's starting to happen with the Labour Party. And yeah, we've got these missions and they are, it's, it's an early stage, it's work in progress, we are going to flesh them out, there's going to be more clarity and more detail. But no one can say that the Labour Party isn't doing the hard work of policy development in front of everybody's eyes through those speeches and those policy documents. Jenny, you said, I don't know what the five missions Jenny, are. Jenny, you sound a bit like even you're not convinced by these woolly missions. Well, what I think well, they're, they? they're about... Can they you? are, um, they are, I can tell you what they are. Go on, then. They are growth, they are net zero, they are health, they're crime, and they're opportunities. But they're just That's things, what... aren't they? They're not policies. No, they can say, you can't just say <laughs> growth on the doorstep. <laughs> no, you definitely can't do that. No, what they are, they're telling um, the country what Keir's priorities are for government, and yeah. then we'll be fleshing but... out exactly what we are going to do to achieve those things. Have you ever met a politician who didn't want to create growth and prosperity? Well, in the interest of balance... Well, so maybe Jeremy Corbyn... In the interest of balance, Jake, can you name Rishi Sunak's uh, oh, five pledges? Uh, cut debt. I was waiting for the bell. It create economic growth. Uh, cut NHS wasting times. Stop the boats. And... Oh, bloody hell, that's awesome. Come on, help me out. I'm not here to help you out. I'm just no, an independent no, economic growth. Come on. They're, they're all hugely important. Five pledges. You can't remember the <laughs> other one. Economic growth, NHS waiting times, stop the boats, grow the economy. There we go. Last thing. Took me a while, but I want the last thing. Is that a problem? But they're basically is the same as Keir Starmer's. Is that, is that a problem that, even, that you, can't, you can't name off the top of your head the Prime Minister's well, top Well, I would pray in my aid that I've got a terrible head cold. Right? Have I'm you? I'm thinking it's clearly... <laughs> You're like Natalie Bennett. Um, would, would the Tories be doing better with the Red Wall if Boris Johnson was still Prime Minister? Uh, yeah, I think they would, actually, because I think Boris Johnson is a politician who managed to cut through. But, you know, Boris Johnson isn't the Prime Minister. And what I think we do have is a big advantage. If you look at the big debate, look at the by-elections going on at the moment. I know we can't name candidates before you jump in, but look at the bigger issue in Uxbridge is the ULES, the ultra-low emission zone in London. And why that's cutting through in Uxbridge and why it cut through in Greater Manchester when Andy Burnham tried to create the Manchester growth zone is it just plays into that idea that you have city-based politicians who do not understand how people live their lives in places like Darlington or Darwin or Rosendale or Accrington or any of those towns. We still live in the most over-centralised country probably in the world, but certainly in Western Europe. And, um, and you know, there is just that feeling still that 
government does not get the blob, as I like to talk about. The government does the not get... The blob is a nonsense, Sir Jake Bowie. The uh, blob well, is see, a nonsense that's, that's what people say. That's what but people you, you say. were just telling us how brilliant Britain was and how much you've got done. And then you also simultaneously claim that the blob stops you doing anything. You can't have it both well, ways. No, well, Either you've been a brilliant you delivery read, government you or you've been held up by the blob. If you read in the Post today about the Chancellor's plan to give tax-raising powers potentially to mayoral combined authorities, that I'm really proud of English devolution, yeah. which the Conservatives have created, apart from London, which was created by the Labour Party. My firm view is that decisions that affect the lives of people who live in Darlington or Greater Manchester yeah. or Midlands or Teesside yeah. should be made in that local area. And I can tell you, well, say the case, does, Doesn't that well, mean that, that me, Sadiq Khan should strong... do the ULEZ and not have national well, politicians coming in? He should take responsible, okay, responsibility fine. for it. What he's trying to do is dodge responsibility and blame it on the government. We, but look, you said the blob is nonsense. So let me take that, dice out for a moment. I can tell you from my time in government that one of the things I was really keen on is to take education... Uh, adult education away from central government and give it to mayors. The greatest resistor to that wasn't the Prime Minister Theresa May, who was in charge at the time, was the Department for Education. We live in a country which believes that Whitehall knows best. I just, sorry, I just don't agree with that. I think the Conservatives have made great strides in breaking it up. But in my view, yeah. we should blow up blobonomics and break up the, <laughs> the the sort of Whitehall monopoly on telling us what to do. Well, let's not get bogged down in the blob. Um, how are you going to vote on this report today? Should the MPs who criticised the Privileges Committee be punished? Absolutely not. I am going to vote against it without a shadow of a doubt or hesitation, the Privileges Committee has overreached. It's behaving like Parliament did during the long Parliament, which led to the English Civil War. And uh, I'm not quite sure we're there yet. But absolutely, just trying to force people out because they disagree with you is completely wrong. And just finally, Jenny, Rishi, uh, Keir Starmer's planning a reshuffle. Are you worried about being sacked? Um, not really. I mean, I'd be very... I'll do whatever Keir thinks is the right thing for the Labour Party. And if that involves me doing something else, then that would be totally fine by me. Fabulous. He's not going to Good straight Jenny. answers. Good straight answers all that. Uh, Jenny, lovely to speak to you. Uh, Banish Chapman, uh, former Labour MP in Darlington. Jake Berry, uh, the MP for Rosendale and Darwin in, in Lancashire. Really good to see you both. Uh, thanks so much for that. And also to James Kanagasawim, who coined the term the Red Wall four years ago. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Catch me live weekdays from 10 on Times Radio. But for now, from me, Matt Jolly, is goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM 
for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.